Ezekiel chapter four is where we last were in our study. So let's just pick up right there. If you missed our uh, you know, introduction to Ezekiel, uh, just for a quick reminder, Ezekiel's in Babylon with people that are in captivity. And yet um, it, he was taken in the earlier waves you know, of captivity. So there's still Jews in Jerusalem, uh, even as Ezekiel's penning these words uh, in our chapters we're reading tonight. So you know, there's still people uh, in Jerusalem, uh, which uh, eventually we know the story because we got through the book of Jeremiah. We know that they're all going down, Jerusalem's gonna be wiped out. But we have to almost rewind our mindset <clears throat> and our thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, because, um, you know, Ezekiel's, there's still people in Jerusalem that might hear his message or the word might get back to the people there. Plus the people that are in Babylon, they have to kind of change their attitude and their behavior as well. So Ezekiel's got, he's preaching to Jews both in Babylon and maybe trying to get word to the Jews in Jerusalem before the, the second and the third, you know, final waves of destruction are over. So uh, if you can kind of put your mind in that place, uh, I might even ask you a quiz question later to see if you uh, understand what I'm saying there. So we'll see. Little test. Uh, Ezekiel chapter four, uh, it says in verse one, it says, thou also son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, and set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel." So here we have the first of four object lessons that the Lord's gonna have Ezekiel portray or, or show the people. And uh, without words, do you remember how we ended in chapter three? Where, where the Lord says, I'm basically gonna sh shut your mouth. Um, look at verse 26. I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of your mouth. Chapter, 20, chapter three, verse 26. Um, I'll make your you know, tongue cling to the roof of your mouth and thou shalt be dumb. You won't say a word and thou shalt not be to them a reprover for their rebellious, but I will speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord, the Lord God. So there's a time for him to speak and there's a time for him to close his mouth where he's not gonna say anything. Well, these four object lessons we're gonna see in the next two chapters, chapter four and five, are him just kind of being silent, not saying stuff but he's gonna be doing these object lessons to try to catch their attention, the Jews. And, and, and this is somewhere Ezekiel's probably, this is written around 603 BC to put you in the time frame. Remember what happened in 605, which remember that would be earlier uh, because the numbers are going you know, um, backwards. Uh, but uh, so now they've only been in captivity for a few years, the, f the first wave of people. Um, so around 603, Ezekiel's saying, um, okay, I'm gonna do these object lessons that the Lord gives to me. And so if you're keeping track of these, the first one you might call the brick and the pan. 
object lesson. <laughs> the, the, the brick in the pan, what, what is the sign of the brick in the pan? Well, the brick or the tile <clears throat> that's talked about here is really just kind of a, a primitive chalkboard. That's the idea here when it says tile or brick. By the way, um, in Babylon, they found ancient, you know, pre, uh, you know, uh, chalkboard uh, tiles where the, the Babylonians wrote all kinds of information on these little tiles. Um, I shouldn't say little, they're actually about 12 by 14. They weren't eight and a half by 11, uh, like your paper. Uh, but they're about 12 by 14 inches and they would use them to write on them. And that's probably what he's taking. Take a, a sort of a chalk talk. You know, if you were in football back in the days when they used to use, you know, chalk uh, to sort of scratch. Now they use dry erase or computers or whatever. But, um, but back then that's what they would use to write on. So Ezekiel takes this brick of tile to write on and what's he supposed to draw? He was supposed to portray the city of Jerusalem. Um, how he did that, I don't know. What did he draw? I have no idea. Um, but there would have been, by the way, for you that have traveled to Israel with me, a dead giveaway, if you wanted to draw a quick rendition of the city of Jerusalem, um, there was a way to do it. And you'll see actually mosaics in ancient buildings of you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years depicting Jerusalem. And what you see is the Roman road, the Cardo, uh, the road in the middle, and then a, a circular center uh, where it was round. Um, and when we go to Jerusalem, I show you that road that would have been the main road through Jerusalem for so long, and, and then that center circle. And that was sort of a symbol of Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, when we go to Jerish in Jordan, it's a twin city of Jerusalem, and, you, and that's a better depiction because, uh, you know, that, that cardo uh, and the center, uh, the city square or circle, uh, is clearly seen, those of you that have been to Jarish with me or Jarash as people call it. Um, so maybe he just drew a circle and a road and uh, some village. They would have known that that's Jerusalem. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna sort of play like a little kid with military soldiers. Did any of you guys or girls, I guess, play with little plastic green army men? Uh, you know, me and a buddy, Mike Kellington, we used to do horrible things. We used to reenact battles and we had little green army men and firecrackers and we'd light them up and they'd blow up that regiment over there. And we'd, you know, and we had a little war going on in the creek by the river there, uh, the little sandy area. But, but yeah, that's what basically Ezekiel's playing army with, with the picture of Jerusalem. And, and then he's making, you know, uh, uh, the, the weapons of besieging, you know, the, the battering ram and all that, how they would, they would take Jerusalem. That's what Ezekiel's doing. He's sitting there playing with this little thing and drawing Jerusalem. Hey, Ezekiel, what are you doing? But he just sat there and, and then suddenly he, he gets out this now, and it says the, this uh, basically like you're picturing a, a omelet pan, you know, a frying pan. Um, probably not what Ezekiel had, uh, the same thing you make your omelet in in the morning, um, but probably a flat sheet of iron. Um, and most Bible scholars believe this was probably the sort of more like a pizza spatula. Um, probably the implement they would use to reach into those stone ovens that cooked their bread. They'd reach in and get the bread and scooch it out with one of these pieces of iron. Um, and iron was one of the hardest, you know, substances, especially related to military battle that they had. So iron was kind of the ultimate of strength. 
And so what is Ezekiel doing here? He's, he's making this Jerusalem. Some, some scholars believe he broke the clay, you know, broke Jerusalem. I don't know, it doesn't really say that as much. But he drew it and then he drew the besieging of Jerusalem and the battering rams. And, and then he put a piece of iron between him and the city. What, what was that about? Why would he put the iron there? Well, if you would, the picture is Ezekiel is a picture of God himself. God is orchestrating the events that Jerusalem will be besieged. Ezekiel is sort of the example of God, you know, scooching all the, the battering rams in position, God bringing the Babylonian army and setting them outside of Jerusalem, just like Ezekiel was doing. And then he says, oh, by the way, I can't get to you because there's a huge iron wall between me and you, Jerusalem. Um, you know, there is an iron wall between you and the Lord. Did you know when you and I engage in sin, just like the children of Israel, what a perfect picture here. You know, Isaiah 59, you know, verse one tells us that the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot touch you. His ear is not deaf that he cannot hear you. Um, but it's your sin that separates you from God. And that's what's happening here. Ezekiel's picturing that with the frying pan and the brick or the tile and the piece of metal or, or iron. Um, all a picture of the, the Lord not really able. You say, God can do anything. Yeah, it's interesting, God can, but at the same time, he told the people, if you wanna do it yourself and sin against me, then you're on your own. I'm not going to intervene and help you. That's the iron, the sin that was between God and the people. And this was being pictured here in object lesson number one, the sign of the brick and the frying pan or uh, the tile and the, the iron. Um, now, uh, all that to say, uh, we move into the next uh, object lesson. And this is one we looked at on Sunday. Uh, and we'll call this one, you know, the sign of Ezekiel lying on his sides. <laughs> lying on his sides. It says here in verse four, lie thou also on thy left side and lay the iniquity of thy house, the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Um, and when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore thou shalt set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arms shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to the other till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. So here we have the sign of Abraham, uh, Abraham, Ezekiel lying on his sides. And we looked at this on Sunday. Um, and if you recall, you know, they, they already, if you'd add the 70 years that they owe, and right here we see the number totaling, you know, uh, the 430 days, but, but if you subtract the 70, then you get 460, uh, 360 years of judgment. Do you guys remember all this? And then what do you do to that 360 years according to the book of Leviticus? Anybody? You multiply it by seven because if they, if they refused to obey during this time, the Lord says, I will multiply that curse seven times over. And that's where things get interesting. When you converted it to days, uh, you know, um, uh, then you see it brought, brought you to some interesting dates in our lifetime, in our uh, prophecies that came to pass. And it's really fascinating. If you missed Sunday, I'd really recommend picking it up because it's not an easy thing to lightly go over. 
Um, that's why I took a whole Sunday to talk about it. Um, by the way, there's even more there. I only scratched the surface uh, Sunday. Uh, if, for those of you that are interested, you can dig deeper if you wish. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. But um, that basically, this is the, the second object. So first object is the, the, the sort of the chalk talk with the frying pan. The second lesson we've got here, uh, the lying on the sides of Ezekiel the prophet, uh, which speaks of the, the years of judgment that would be put upon the Jews. And it spells it out very clearly. Now we get this next crazy one. This might even be the craziest. Uh, and it's not gonna be pleasant to read, I'll, I'll warn you. Uh, but it's number three, the sin of eating unclean food. Here we go, verse nine. Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and fitches, um, uh, and put them in one vessel and make thee bread thereof according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon thy side. 390 days shalt thou eat thereof. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day from time to time thou shalt eat it. Um, uh, thou shalt drink also water by measure, the sixth part of a hen from, the time, from time to time thou shalt drink. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of a man in their sight. I warned you. Verse 13, and the Lord said, even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I shall drive them. Ooh, this is bad. Now, before we talk about the horrible part, um, uh, Ezekiel, the question is, did he do this while he was lying on his side? That's the big question the scholars debate. Um, and, and so what has he got? He's got this little stash of food that he was supposed to get to make sure that he could do all the days that he had to lie on his side. So the big debate is, did, he, did Ezekiel lie down at you know, 8 a.m. or from nine to five and then get up and go home the next uh, the evening and then come out the next morning and lie down? Or did he just lie on his side unstoppingly uh, for all those days and did he pack a, a, a bunch of food in this little bag and just eat it that way? Um, that's the big debate and we don't know the answer. Was it a full-time lying on his side or part-time? Uh, was it eight hours a day or was it five, three minutes a day? We have no idea. The main thing I think we can take away from this though is I wouldn't wanna be Ezekiel. Even if it's 10 minutes, man, uh, forget the whole lying on your side thing. That's, that doesn't sound like fun, but Ezekiel faithfully does this. Now, as far as the food goes, he's given this measurement of food. And because these are Bible measurements, it's hard for us to discern, but I'm just gonna tell you this. It's a tiny, tiny amount of food. Uh, oh, great, he can, at least he's got a bunch of food. Tiny amounts of food and water. In fact, if you kind of measure this out in these biblical, you know, what's a hint of water or whatever, he's basically barely enough to keep him alive. That's, that's pretty much what's going on here barely enough to keep him alive. Remember, this is gonna be over a year that Ezekiel has to do this. And so he's gonna be probably visibly, um, you know, deteriorating. Have any of you guys watched that series Alone uh, where these people go out with their, you know, hatchet and a, and a you know, a tarp and they have to try to survive, you know, uh, as long as they can up in the, uh, somewhere up in Canada, you know, or, or the Arctic. Um, and the worst thing is not the cougars and the bears and all that stuff, that's, that's part of the deal. But the, the hardest part is they, they pretty much all starve to death out there. If you've watched the series, it's hard for them to get enough food out there. 
And they start looking like, like skeletons walking around, uh, some of these people, and they don't even realize how bad they look and they have to fly them out. Like if you've watched the series, it's kind of crazy. But that's what Ezekiel probably would have started looking like. He would have been getting skinnier and skinnier, just laying there on his side, uh, unhealthily so. Um, but that's part of the object lesson. And we'll see why uh, here in a little bit when the Lord describes what's literally gonna happen to the Jews. So you've got the sign of this uh, eating of unclean food. Now, <clears throat> you say, Brett, that's horrible. Well, guess what? Ezekiel thought that too. Eating human dung with your food, mixing it in. Now, by the way, uh, there, is a, there are some scholars out there that are saying, well, he wasn't mixing the dung in his food. He was using it to cook the food with. They, they would use you know, cow manure uh, and they'd mix it with straw and they would use that as fuel to, for fires um, and, and starting fires and what have you. Um, that, that was part of the deal. So some say, no, he was just cooking with it. But either way, it's horrible. But it's, Ezekiel, he, he's, not, he's not really good with this. You want me to do what, Lord? In fact, let's read verse, uh, verse 14 after he hears this about the human you know, waste. He says in verse 14, then said I, oh Lord God. <laughs> I love this, poor Ezekiel. Behold, my soul hath not been polluted for from my youth up even till now, I have not eaten of that which dieth of itself or is torn in pieces, neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. Do you remember how Ezekiel was raised? He was raised to be a what? a priest. So Ezekiel would have been very kosher his whole life, you know, eating only the clean foods of the Levitical priesthood. But now the Lord's saying, here's what I want you to do and I want you to eat. So this is where those that say, no, he was just using the dung for cooking. I don't think that's what he was saying. Because Ezekiel's response here, if he was just talking about cooking, you go, well, that's kind of a bummer, but oh well. Uh, but this time he says, Lord, I can't do that. I've never had anything unclean. And now you want me to do what? But, but check out what the Lord says, verse 15. Then said he unto me, uh, lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. Whew. I don't know which ones. I mean, you might say it's still bad, Brett. Yeah, but I grew up on a farm and there are certain you know, types of manure that are worse than others. If you know what I'm talking about. Uh, a cow pie, I used, I used, we called it poop patrol. I'd have to go around with a, uh, a wheelbarrow and a pitchfork and, and you couldn't pick up the fresh ones. You know what I mean with a pitchfork? You had to kind of wait till they were at that perfect cow pie consistency and, you know, and then uh, you'd throw it in the wheelbarrow. Um, but horse, horse manure, you horse people, I don't know, it, it, there's, it's not nearly as gross for some reason. Uh, uh, in fact, if you've lived on a farm or a ranch, uh, the smell of horse manure is not even as bad as cow manure. Um, but worse still is chicken manure. Brett, why aren't you talking about this? I don't know. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> but, but fortunately, he says, oh, Lord God, no. And Lord says, okay, I'll, I'll replace the human waste with, with cow manure. And, he, and you almost kind of sense a sigh of relief. Oh, yeah. Uh, poor Ezekiel. Again, if you, aren't you glad you weren't a prophet from the Old Testament? Uh, these guys had to go through some crazy stuff and, uh, and the Lord was using them powerfully, but, but not always easily. Uh, kind of brutal. Moreover, verse 16, he said unto me, son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem and they shall eat bread by weight. 
and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment that they may want bread and water and be astonished one with another and consume away for their iniquity. So this is where the Lord is describing what's gonna happen you know, with their, the severity of their famine. Now, again, you and I, having gone through you know, the book of Jeremiah, we already saw how, remember, they started eating their own children. Uh, can, they resorted to cannibalism uh, when they were under siege in, the, la- in the, the latter sieges of Nebuchadnezzar. So we, we've actually seen all this come to pass in the book of Jeremiah. Ezekiel saying, you guys, warning, 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 this stuff's coming, but, um, but the people didn't listen. But you and I already know it came. And the, Ezekiel was spot on here and the Lord knew exactly what was gonna happen, but the people blew it off. And, and such is the case when people blow off the biblical warnings even today. Here's Ezekiel and Jeremiah warning the people, you guys are gonna die, you're gonna be slaughtered, you're gonna, the, the Babylonians are gonna come and be seen. And remember the other prophets, no, 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 it's all gonna be good. But these guys were correct. And, and yet, you know, before we say, what a bunch of losers, these people didn't listen to Ezekiel or Jeremiah. But do you and I listen to the word of God? You know, we, we do our little sinful things and we think we're pulling it off and nobody's gonna find out. But the Bible says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Interesting that people think that somehow they're gonna be the exception to that rule. Uh, my sin's not gonna find me out. Um, but it does and it will, absolutely. And sadly, there's, there's warnings about, you know, everything from sexual immorality to uh, greediness to warnings all throughout the Bible about sin. But, but the sad thing is sin always catches up to you. You always get nailed by sin. Oh, we think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, all right. But, but that's what the people of Israel said. Hey, we're, we're cool. We got our walls and our city and we've been living here forever. It's great. But eventually the word of God came to pass and they suddenly were all shocked. Um, God forbid that you and I hear the word, but don't really put to practice what the word is actually saying. Or, or even, you know, you and I, we can, we can play this game where because we've taken the notes as we go through the Bible, that somehow we're keeping the word because we took the notes. But actually we have to ask ourselves, am I literally doing what the word tells me to do? And am I repenting of sin? Um, You might even put this next to this chapter if you wanna put a line next to the chapter. Um, Sinfulness leads to leanness. That's exactly what's happening here. Sinfulness leads to leanness. Leanness, they were starving. They were hungry. And here's Ezekiel eating these little tiny portions of a little hint of water and a little tiny chunk of meat and just a tiny bit of food and he's starving as he's laying on his side and he's doing all this stuff. And, and the people are like, what are you doing? You, you get, get a steak, Ezekiel, you're starving here, buddy. And he's like, this is what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna be starving and you're gonna be thirsty. And the people blew it off and they just kept their sinful ways. Sinfulness leads to leanness, leanness of soul. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we, we think that certain things will fill us up, but Oh man, uh, leanness is what it's all about uh, when you're a sinful person and, and continuing in sin, unrepentant. So we have chapter four, those first three. Now, before we go into the fourth of the uh, object lessons, there's, there's, um, there's kind of a representation here 
uh, of the four things that he, of the four signs that he's given. Um, and that is the number one, the fact of the siege is represented. The fact of the siege is represented by the, the, um, the sign of the brick and the frying pan. That it's, it's factual, it's gonna happen. The brick and the frying pan. Number two, the lying on his side speaks of the length of the punishment the length of the punishment. So the first story, you say, why is the redundant story over and over again? The first story speaks of the, the, uh, the fact of the siege. The second one, the length of the punishment. The third one, the food one, speaks of the severity of what's gonna happen. The severity of what's gonna happen. But the fourth one in chapter five is gonna speak of the results of the, the siege the results of the Babylonians coming. And that's where we come to this fourth. It's the sign of the shaved head. (laughs) Here we go. Um, Verse one, it says, and thou son of man, take thee a sharp knife and take thee a barber's razor and cause it to pass upon thine head and upon thy beard. When uh, then take thee the, the balances to weigh the scale and divide the hair and thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled and thou shalt take a third part and smite about it with a knife. And in the third, the third part, uh, the, the last of the three parts, thou shalt scatter it in the wind and I will draw out a sword after them. Thou shalt take thereof a few in number and bind them in thy skirts. Then, take of them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire for thereof shall a fire come forth into the house of Israel. Okay, now the, the people are probably thinking, oh, he's just totally lost it. Now, now this, this is something that our culture, you're like, oh, he shaved his head, cool, whatever, shaved his beard, time, about time. Uh, Mr. Harry Ezekiel needed to shave anyway. Well, here's the thing. In those days, remember what it meant to shave your beard off? Um, there's still places in the world, like in Afghanistan, you know, when, when, uh, uh, when the United States went in there 20 years ago, can you believe that? 20 years ago, we started our thing in, in Afghanistan. Um, all the freed young men were shaving their beards off because it was illegal before we went in there. Now, uh, who knows what's gonna happen if we leave and when we leave, but uh, you know, the, the point is, even to the Muslim in a lot of places in the world, the beard is a, is a, a sign of honor. In Bible times, remember the story of David who sent um, that king who his dad died, he sent him a, get, you know, a condolence card basically, sent a bunch of his servants from Jerusalem, Naaman, and he sent him over there and, uh, and he thought, you got, you're just spying us out. So they cut off their robes where their rear ends stick out and then they shaved half their beard off and sent him back and said, you guys were just sending spies even though David was just a nice, kind gesture. Remember that story? Well, the guys came back and they were totally embarrassed. So they stayed in Jericho and David's like, hey, where's those guys that we sent to Naaman to give him the you know, condolences and stuff? They said, well, they're, they're not coming back. Well, why not? Because they're so ashamed. Not because their robe was cut out, like you know, in a hospital garment. Um, uh, that was a shameful thing but that was no big deal compared to their beards. And David said, okay, okay, I'll tell you what, let them stay in Jericho until their beards grow back and then they can come back to Jerusalem. What's the big deal about the beard? It was everything to them. It was, their, it was a sign of wisdom. It was a sign of maturity and honor. And if you shaved off the beard, it was a total in, insult. So, so for, you gotta understand that because for Ezekiel to shave his head and to shave his beard off, 
That is the ultimate of, of gesture of, of several things. Mourning is one of those things, but also total humiliation. That's what, that's what this was a symbol of. Mourning and total humiliation. Um, that's why he shaves off his hair. Now, hair being a sense of your pride and your honor and all this stuff, what happened to the hair? Well, three things. So if you could almost picture the hair clumps meaning something to the Jews, what it's supposed to mean is, you know, this is the thing you, you actually covet, your pride and, you know, your maturity and your so-called wisdom and all that. But let's see what happens to your hair or your pride or your wisdom. And so he divides it with a scale. He, he puts his hair on a scale. Now you say, how do you weigh hair? Well, if you're a guy who hasn't shaved for a long time, your hair starts to weigh stuff. Like it's got some mass to it. And so he weighs it out with a little scale and these clumps of hair. So a third, let's divide this up. The first part of the third, he burns with fire. The second part, he cuts up with a knife. And um, the third part, he scatters in the wind and then ran around in the wind trying to slice it with a sword after it was blowing in the wind. Yeah, he's totally lost it, Brad. That's just, uh, are you sure this is the Lord telling him to do this or was this just him you know, needing a little medication or something? Well, actually, this is exactly what the Lord wants and he's gonna explain to us what each one of these third, thirds mean. Um, uh, let's take a look. So verse five, it says, thus saith the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. And she hath changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations and my statutes more than the countries that are round about her for they have refused my judgments and my statutes. They have not walked in them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you multiplied more than the nations that are round about you and have not walked in my statutes, neither kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, the Lord God, uh, behold, I, even I, am against thee and will execute judgments in the midst of thee in the sight of the nations. And I will do in thee that which I have not done and whereunto I will not do any more like because of all thine abominations. Therefore, the fathers shall eat the, the sons in the midst of thee and the sons shall eat their fathers and I will execute judgments in thee and the whole remnant of thee will I scatter into the winds. Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with the, the, all thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also diminish thee. Neither shall mine eye spare, neither will I have any pity. Man, this is where the Lord is just saying, you're gonna be judged because you, as Jews, you had every opportunity to follow my, I gave you my word. The word of God given by, you know, Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books and his statutes, commandments and judgments, the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, all was given to the Jews. But not only did they not keep the law of the Lord, but they got worse than the Canaanite nations that were around them. Um, and if you study the Canaanites, they were evil and wicked and doing all sorts of abomin uh, you know, abominations in the sight of the Lord. It makes me concerned because here's God's people doing worse than the world. I hope that the church of Jesus Christ, we learn a lesson from Old Testament Jews 
because I'm not sure we're that far off from where these guys were. I see where, you know, in somehow in certain forms of Christianity, so-called today, um, where we don't call sin, sin anymore. And, and we behave in a way where even the world goes, whoa, man, can't believe those guys. You know, we have all these, you know, and, and I have to be careful here because, um, you know, I don't wanna go along with the world's narrative on this, but, you know, we have these celebrity pastors who have moral failures and the world just loves that. Oh, wow, another pastor fallen you know, because of, you know, sexual sin or whatever. And, and, and even the world, this is where we have to be kind of careful. Even the world is a little shocked at what happened, you know, there at Liberty University or, or Ravi Zacharias or, you know, the Hillsong pastor from New York, I forget his name, Carl something. Um, but just t- time after time and person after person, the world's going, whoa, those Christians are worse than we are. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, you and I are better than the world or anything like that, but, but we as Bible-believing Christians, we are called to be holy. Be ye holy as I, the Lord, am holy. Blessed, Jesus said, are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Instead of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the church, if we're not careful, we can start hungering and thirsting after sinfulness. And then what we do is we dismiss it as, hey, I'm, I'm saved by grace. Remember when Paul said, yeah, we're saved by grace, but should we continue in sin and let grace abound? What do he say? God forbid. Like we don't just use the grace of God as a place to wipe our feet as we go in and say, hey, I'm here to worship you, Lord, even though I'm just totally blowing off your word altogether. Now, the good news is, and I say that literally, the gospel, the good news is that you and I are so close to being able to be reconciled back to God. It's one sincere, repentant prayer away to say, Lord, I've sinned against you and I've broken your word and I've gone against what your Bible tells me to do. Um, But the problem is nobody's teaching repentance and confession anymore. Um, We're all about making excuses hey, I, I'm, I'm saved by grace, I'm free in Christ, liberty in Christ. And so we, uh, we just go on in our sin and, and we don't read the Bible as much anymore, so we don't even know what sin is anymore. And we go around calling things that the Bible not only calls a sin, but stuff that the Bible even calls an abomination unto the Lord. And we go and say, we celebrate that and we accept it. Um, really, it makes me wonder, as a church, can we sort of look at these Jews here and go, oh man, these losers. No wonder they got, were eating each other. No wonder they were starving. No wonder their city got crushed. They were a bunch of sinners. But we need to maybe carefully and prayerfully say, Lord, help your church not to fall into the same category. That's, by the way, why this story is here. The story is recorded in the book of Ezekiel. Um, I remember, what was it, 15 years ago? Last time I went through Ezekiel, it's been a while. It's about time I got back here. But I remember when we were at the school and I was teaching Ezekiel and this one guy came up to me on a Sunday morning. He said, Brett, uh, you'll see me in about four or five months. I said, why? I'm sick of all this stuff and the, you know, the doom and gloom of the Old Testament. That's what he said. He said, you know what? Uh, let's get to, when you get to the book of Daniel, I'll, I'll join back up with you guys. But this, this Old Testament stuff, <laughs> But here's the thing, and, and this was a long, long time ago, but you know what was interesting? I happened to later find out that guy, he was all tangled up in all kinds of sinful stuff. Like the very thing that this, 
this section of scripture would have done really well for him to listen and take heed to the word of God. He was just saying, I don't wanna hear it. I don't, I don't think it was that he was just like, I don't wanna hear the doom and gloom of the Old Testament. He just didn't wanna be convicted of his sin. And uh, later on, he showed up uh, somewhere midstream in Daniel, a, a very broken uh, and very troubled man. You know, I hope that none of us just dismiss this and say, ah, he's a doom and gloom, Ezekiel, what a nutcase, he's chopping his hair off and throwing it in the wind and running after it with an eye. Like this is, this, what a weirdo. But do you understand this imagery is crazy and it's meant to be weird. It's almost supposed to be a little twilight zony because you know what, you and I, when we sin and we just engage in sinful attitudes and actions, um, man, sin leads you to that leanness of soul and troubledness in our minds and our hearts. And this is a good, even brutal, but a good reminder for you and me to, to maybe make sure that we're not just embracing things that are sinful. And, and like these guys, the, the indictment here is you're worse than the nations around you. Like that's a horrible thing that the Jews are gonna have to hear, but they're not gonna listen to it. But they're worse than the Canaanites. They're worse than the Amalekites. They're worse than the Philistines. That's what the Lord's saying. And he's not over-exaggerating. So what do we do? We need to check our attitudes. I, I think we should, you know, I mean, I, there's a long list of stuff we could talk about. While the world is talking about transgenderism and all this stuff, should the church, should we go back to just sexual immorality? Uh, it's almost like with all the levels of sexual sin that it's got us all the way down this far reaching road, it's almost like a couple living together before they're married, is, that's not even the bad list anymore. Even though the Bible says that's called sin. The Lord said that's gonna hurt you and it's gonna mess you up, but people say, yeah, whatever. Or drunkenness. People, you know, today in the church, I remember when I was a kid, uh, alcohol was the forbidden beverage when I was a kid. How many of you guys grew up with that? Like no Christian drinks alcohol. Some of you guys, you guys kind of, now the Bible doesn't say Christians can't drink alcohol. I agree. Uh, and some of you, it's, it's fine. You know, if you have wine with your dinner and stuff like that, that's great. But what I've seen in the church is this fine line somewhere between, you know, the liberty that you have to drink alcohol of some kind, wine with your dinner and stuff, that's great. But I see a lot of people not really discerning that line of where it's too much because the Bible speaks of drunkenness. And, and it's one of the sins listed there, uh, you know, in Galatians and in Ephesians that talks about if you continually practice such sin like drunkenness and adultery and stuff like that, it's in the same category, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But, but like these people, could it be that we start to kind of tune that out, say, well, it's just a little drink. Oh, so I get a little tipsy at night and you know, it just helps me sleep and gets me more comfortable. And we can make our, our rationalization of why it's okay. But if it's drunkenness, well, what is drunkenness? Well, there's an interesting question right there. We know what the state of Oregon considers drunkenness when you're driving a vehicle. But from what I'm gathering from a lot of my Christians, bro brothers and sisters, is people are crossing that line at home all the time. Oh, I'm not driving, so it's not legal uh, problems that I have. I, I, I just stay home and I drink a little bit so I can be careful, Christians. I, I know this sounds legalistic and, oh, Brett, you're a dinosaur, come on. But that's what they probably said to Ezekiel, so I'm in good company. I'm, I'm not gonna shave my head though anytime soon. Be careful though, let's not be like the Jews of this. I think that we can't criticize the Jews here because we have that same propensity. And the Lord says, man, you're worse than the world. 
You should be better. You should be a more upstanding, uh, but they weren't. So then he ex- now is gonna explain in, ver- in, in very detail the, the three parts of the hair, and he's gonna explain what they are. Verse 12, it says, a third part of thee shall die with the pestilence and with famine, uh, they, uh, shall they be consumed in the midst of thee. So, so that's the first part. Remember the one that he just cut his hair off and weighed a third out and just threw it in the fire. That's the first, the th- first third are people who are gonna die of pestilence or disease and with famine. The second part there, it says, uh, it says the, the next third part shall fall by the sword round about thee. Remember the, he, the second part he cut with a knife. Now the word knife there in verse uh, two uh, is better translated sword, just, just a heads up. He wasn't out there with a little you know, pen knife or something. He had a full on sword and that's the, the, the Hebrew word is sword. And I don't know why the King James chose to say knife. Um, but some of your newer translations put sword there. So he cuts his hair off with a sword. Um, that third is gonna fall by the sword in battle uh, and, uh, or, or just being slaughtered on the hillsides. Remember how the, Jeremiah talked about how there'd be carcasses laying over the hills of Jerusalem from the sword. This is the same thing Ezekiel foretold. So the first part, famine and disease. The, the second part uh, is falling by the sword. And then the, the third and final third, he says in verse 12, and I will scatter the third part into all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. Those are the people that ran for their lives, but eventually Babylon caught up with them. Do you remember um, even Zedekiah, the king tried to do that. Uh, the, the, the king was, Nebuchadnezzar was just crashing through the doors. Zedekiah snuck out and he ran for a little while with his posse, but the Babylonians caught up to him and, and uh, took him into captivity. Um, but notice here, um, there was another little thing that says here in verse three, thou shalt also take there of a few in number and bind them in thy skirts. Um, what's that? Uh, the word skirts there, do you see what your margin reads? Bind them in your what? Wings. That's an interesting thing. What's this tiny, you, it's like the Lord says one third, one third and one third. Oh, there's gonna be a little pinch of hair that we're gonna pull off and Ezekiel, I want you to tuck them in your wing or in your skirts, uh, what's, what's that for? Well, I have a theory. Uh, I wouldn't die on this battlefield, but I think it's um, the Lord saying, I'm gonna save a tiny remnant of you. And I'm gonna put you in the shadow of my what? Wings. It's, it's a great picture. That's what the Lord does. And he, he does, he's not gonna completely destroy the Jews altogether but they've asked for massive des, uh, you know, destruction and, uh, and the Lord's just gonna take a little pinch of them and save them. And uh, that's probably what that's referring to there in verse three. Well, verse 13, thus shall my anger be, ac- 13, thus shall my anger be accomplished and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be comforted and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. Moreover, I will make thee waste and a reproach among the nations that are round about thee in the sight of all that pass by. So it shall be a reproach and a taunt and instruction and an astonishment unto the nations that are round about thee when I shall execute judgments in thee in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Oh, I'm so glad people say that we don't serve the Lord of the Old Testament. Um, Actually, you do. Do you understand that? 
I hope you understand the same wrath and fury God that's here is the same God you and I believe in. Now, the good news is he also is gracious and merciful uh, and his mercy endures forever. But it's kind of an on or off switch. It's not like, uh, you know, gradually it gets wrath and gradually it gets gracious. It's just whether or not you're saved. And it, it just depends on who you are. You know, uh, Jesus talked about he'll either be a stone of, uh, uh, of salvation or a stone of crushing. Jesus talked about that. And it just depends on your position in Christ. If you're still a sinner and still in your sins, you're, under, you're gonna be under the stone of crushing. Read this chapter in Ezekiel. But if you're saved by the grace of God, he becomes a solid rock that you can put your feet upon. And it's just on or off. You're either saved or you're not saved. So this God still exists. And this, this is the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we need to continually remind people, fury is still part of his deal. When we, we, see, we see the word here, you know, it's kind of brutal. He says in verse 13, mine anger shall be accomplished and my co- I, I will cause my fury to rest upon them. Is that gonna happen again? Yes. The tribulation period that's coming is a time where God's fury will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. The question is, are you gonna be there? I don't believe so if you're a Christian, for you are not appointed unto wrath, 1 Thessalonians chapter five tells us, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. But don't make the mistake of saying, I'm glad that he's not the God of the Old Testament. He's the same. So when you read this fury part, it's meant to stir us up a little bit and go, whoo, don't wanna be on the wrong side of that. Um, and so we see that um, he says, and in fury, verse 15, in furious rebukes, I the Lord have spoken it. Verse 16, when I shall send upon them the evil arrows of famine, which shall be for their destruction and which I send to destroy you. And I will increase the famine upon you and I will break your staff of bread. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts and they shall bereave thee and pestilence and behold shall pass through thee. And I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord have spoken it. Wow, scary stuff. So these little object lessons that Ezekiel did, uh, the four of them, uh, they all had purpose, all had meaning. The results of the siege is the fourth one, you know, the sign of the shaved head and the hair and all that stuff. Now, chapter six is where we have uh, the beginning of two sermons. Chapter six is one sermon. Chapter seven is the other sermon. I'd like to show you a little bit uh, that's kind of fun. At the beginning of this sermon, verse one of chapter six, and the word of the Lord came to me. And then look at the last verse of chapter six. Um, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's what, is, that's what the sermon's gonna do. I'm gonna speak the word of the Lord and they're gonna know that Jehovah is God. Look at the beginning of the sermon in chapter seven, verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me. And then the last verse of chapter seven, uh, the last phrase, and they shall know that I am the Lord. This is the point of these two sermons uh, that the people will say, wow, Jehovah, he is the Lord, he is God. Um, that's the point. Let's read these sermons uh, that, that Ezekiel has. Uh, now he gets to speak, by the way. No more eating poo. Uh, that's great. Uh, he, gets to, he gets to talk again. Praise the Lord. He says in verse one, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set thy face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them 
Anybody want to take a stab, I guess, at why would Ezekiel turn to the mountains and, and preach against them? Anybody? What was going on in the high places? Paganism. That's where they did all their paganism. They didn't do it as much on the Temple Mount. They did, but they really practiced their paganism up in the mountains, in the high places, and in the groves. So he says, prophesy up in those mountains against them and say, verse three, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the rivers and to the valleys. Behold, I, even I will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places and your altars shall be desolate and your images shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones round about your altars. In all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste and the high places shall be desolate, that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate and your idols may be broken and cease and your images may be cut down and your works may be abolished and the slain shall fall in the midst of you and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet will I leave a, rem a remnant that you may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations when you shall be scattered through the countries. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whether they shall be carried captives because I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me and with their eyes, which go a whoring after their idols and they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord and that I have not said in vain what I would do this evil to them. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord God, smite with the hand and stamp with thy foot and say, alas, for all the evil abominations <clears throat> of the house of Israel. For they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by the pestilence. He that is far off shall die of the pestilence and he that is near shall fall by the sword. And he that remaineth and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus will I accomplish my fury upon them. Then shall ye know that I am the Lord, which their slain men shall be among their idols round about their altars, upon every high hill, in all the tops of the mountains and under every green tree, under every thick oak, the place where they did offer sweet savor to all their idols, so will I stretch out my hand upon them and make the land desolate, yea, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla and in all their habitations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Interesting, you know, so much here, um, but I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this because this is virtually what Jeremiah taught us uh, and, and it's word for word. It's the Lord speaking through Ezekiel to a whole other group of people to make sure God's word gets across to the people. So these are reoccurring themes. One theme though at the end of this, you know, he says, I will make this land desolate. At this time, before the Babylonian uh, invasion, Israel was fruitful, his land still flowing with milk and honey and it was beautiful and lush. Um, but the Lord did make Israel desolate. Um, by the time, you know, a hundred years ago when Mark Twain was there, he couldn't find a tree or a plant anywhere. What made Israel desolate? Well, there's a couple things that happened, uh, but the biggest thing might shock you. Um, and this is one of the fulfillments of Bible prophecy. How did the Lord make Israel desolate? Well, as it turns out, during the Ottoman Turks period of ruling the region as known as Palestine at that time, the Ottomans did something that was kind of strange. They taxed people 
based on how many trees they had on their property. Um, and so the Jews and, and the people in, the, in that land cut down all the trees. Like, like literally it was a long, it was, you know, uh, um, it was like 50 years of this happening where people said, I'm not getting taxed, these exorbitant taxes based on how many fruit trees or any trees I have. So they cut them down and used them as firewood. But in so doing, uh, really changed the whole climate of the land. And it, it became very de desert, very barren. Soil erosion started to take over. There's whole regions of that area that were once fruitful and beautiful that became a desert. Now it's only in recent days, and I say recent, the last 100 years, um, that the Jews have brought the land back to life, which is also fulfilling Bible prophecy. Um, it's really kind of an amazing thing. But this is one of those things that Ezekiel touches on here. But, but before we leave sermon number one, there's one phrase I wanna point out that I think is, is, well, it's sort of heartbreaking. You kinda, you see the Lord full of wrath and fury. And this is the scary part of God that I think you kinda go, man, I'm glad I'm not on the side of that. But even in his fury, did you see just his heartbrokenness for his people? It's right there in verse nine. He says, um, in verse nine, he says, because I am broken with their whorish heart. Who's broken? It seems that the Lord's heart is broken because the heart of the Jews were, and the word is whoring, a whoring, prostituting themselves to other gods and what have you, and idols. Um, and thus the Lord, it, it, it broke, it really broke his heart. That's kind of a sad part of this whole thing. Um, but then there's one final phrase that I wanna show you that is such a key and such a truth. Um, the last part of verse nine, he says, and they, the Jews, sinful Jews, they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. I've marked that in my Bible because that's something that people do to this very day. When people sin, they might make excuses for their sin. They might say it's not really sin, but they end up loathing themselves for it. And they can't always tell you why, but they do. There's a self-loathing. Now, instead of people when they're, self-loathing, what is the world's remedy to self-loathing? It's actually ridiculous, it's self-loving. I get so tired of seeing Instagram entries. How people say, I'm just learning to love myself. <laughs> Stop it. That is not the answer. Don't love yourself and don't be, you know, like this is such a worldly notion. Um, building your love up for yourself, no. No, no, no. Um, the loathe thing is true. When we sin, we loathe ourselves. But instead of saying, I'm not gonna loathe myself anymore, I'm gonna love myself. And I'm gonna love my behavior and I'm gonna love what I'm doing. It, it's sort of you get, being as rebellious as you possibly can be against God by saying, I'm just gonna love my loathsome self. You're rebelling against God in that. Don't love yourself, repent. When you find yourself loathing yourself, say, I repent of the sins that I've done because they stink and they are loathsome. But the answer is not self-esteem, building up your self-esteem. No, the answer is acknowledge that you're a loathsome person. Just say, it's true, I'm, I'm loathsome. Brad, I don't know if that's healthy. Well, tell Paul the apostle that. <laughs> Romans chapter seven, do you hear it? Remember, this is that chapter, Romans 7, where Paul says, I don't do the things I do wanna do, and I do the things I don't wanna do, and the things I wish to do, I do not. Remember that whole thing he said over and over again? But here's how he concludes this. It's, it's Romans 7, 24. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Do you get a sense that he's loathing himself right here? 
He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his question. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How did Paul deal with the self-loathsomeness of his own sinfulness? He didn't say, you know, I'm just gonna love myself. Even though I'm loathsome, I'm gonna love myself. He didn't do that. He said, I loathe myself and I am loathsome. Thanks be to God who sent his son, Jesus. Why? The answer, because Jesus came and died for those sins that are so loathsome. So that the Lord says, I will remove your sins and I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. You'll no longer be in the stench of sin. I will wash you and cleanse you and save you. So what people are doing in learning to love themselves, even though they're loathsome, they're just pouring perfume on the cow pie, not to get away too far from our analogy tonight. The stench of sin. You can sprinkle perfume on it if you want to, but it's still there. And it's still full of disease and grossness. Or you can say, I want my sins, not just sprinkled perfume on the cow pie, I want my sins removed. And the Lord says, I will take your sins and I will put them as far as the east is from the west. Don't you want the cow pie as far away from you as possible? That's what the Lord says he'll do. And this whole self-esteem, you know, I'm building my self-esteem. No, that's just dumb. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's not about your self-esteem. The Bible says it's about esteeming others better than yourself. But also the more you're looking into building up your self-esteem, you're, you're actually, you could be building up something that doesn't really need to be built up. It might even need to be torn down. I know this goes contrary to what a lot of the world says, but you and me building ourselves up and loving ourselves and all this stuff, that's just dumb. The key is to repent of your sins and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love others, and then you're good to go. Uh, I know that might sound overly simplified, but you know, count me guilty of saying, let God be true and every man a liar. The world is telling you what you need to do. Love yourself. And even Christians and churches are saying that nowadays. Be careful, Christians, read your Bibles. It's not about loving yourself. Uh, I just, I can't say that strong enough. The sad thing is Ezekiel's people, they loathed themselves because they knew they were sinners, but they didn't do the right thing. They didn't repent of their sin, break off their sins and turn to the Lord. That's the answer. And, and then where does a, a healthy perspective come from? Not from self-esteem or loving yourself. It comes from just knowing the love of God, knowing your position in Christ. When you accept Jesus and you for, your sins are forgiven, you know that you're in good standing with God, which is the only one that matters. It doesn't matter what Herkimer thinks of you or, or, or the people at work or whatever. It, it, what matters is what God thinks of you, not what you think of yourself, what God thinks of you. And if you're a believer and you've confessed your sins and repented to God, guess what? The Lord says, my thoughts toward you are precious thoughts, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And with you, I have a future and a hope or an expected end in store for you. And when you have your identity in Christ because of what he's done for you, I'll show you a healthy, balanced person. But if you're trying to love yourself, you may not love what you find the more you dig deeper into yourself. You might just find a few more cow pies in there. And it's not lovable. It's just not. Get rid of the cow pie. Love the Lord with all your heart. Follow Christ. Be forgiven. Well, 
all that to say, Ezekiel gives this word that I find kind of fascinating that today we, we wonder why we loathe ourselves. And the answer is the same reason here. They shall loathe themselves for the evils that they have committed in all their abominations. Sad, but people don't know how to deal with that these days. Well, there's one more sermon. Uh, let's read this quickly. So sermon number two, verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, also thou son of man, thus saith the Lord God unto the land of Israel, and end, the end is come upon the four corners of the land. Now is the end come upon thee, and I will send mine anger upon thee and will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense upon thee all thine abominations. Um, I will judge thee according to thy ways. They were bringing this upon themselves. Now, this is the same thing that happens to the non-believer during the great white throne judgment. The Lord will judge you according to your ways. Bad, bad thing. But if you're a Christian, if you accept Christ, your sins will be forgiven and forgotten and he will not judge you according to your bad things. He will judge only the good things that you've done. That sounds like a deal to me. Well, verse four, mine eye shall not spare thee, neither uh, will I have pity, but I will recompense thy ways upon thee and thine abomination shall be in the midst of thee and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, an evil and only evil, behold, is come. An end is come, the end is come, and it watcheth for thee, behold, it is come. The morning is come unto thee, thou, O thou that dwelleth in the land. The time is come, the day of trouble is near, and not the uh, sounding again of the mountains. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon thee and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense thee for all thine abominations and mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thy abominations that are in the midst of thee. And you shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. Would you mark that? Because this is a flag that you need to put in the Old Testament, another name of God. Um, this, you know, we have various names and suddenly in the Bible it says, I am Jehovah. And then he, or the Lord, you know, you see the word Lord there with the little capital letters. That means it's the word Jehovah. So at the end of verse nine, I am the Lord, that's Jehovah, that smiteth. Um, and the Hebrew word there is macha or micha, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But um, Jehovah macha, what is that? It's the Lord that smites. Well, Brett, I don't want to remember that one. That's a scary one, but he is. He's the Lord that smites. Does anybody know what Jehovah Jireh means? Provider. Does anybody know what Jehovah Nisi means? Banner. Does anybody know what Jehovah Rapha means? Yes, the healer. Does anybody know what Jehovah Tzidkenu means? Our righteousness. Does anybody know what Jehovah Maka means? You do now, but you didn't, a lot of you, because nobody likes that one. That's not the one you put on your mirror or, you know, the Lord that smites. It's like, hmm, that's not a very fun one, Brett. The Lord that smiteth thee. I like the healer, the provider, uh, but the smiter, ooh. But, but here's the thing. Remember I was saying the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and this is the same God that smites. But praise be to the Lord. I mean, we could talk about this all night, but the, 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 the truth is he still smites. Well, Brett, that makes me nervous. But if you're a Christian, who was smitten for you? Jesus Christ. He's still the same God. 
Just the difference is these people in this story were unrepentant. They did not repent from their sins. But as it turns out, the Lord says, if you repent, I'll bless you. Just like he says to you and me. Isaiah 53, verse four and six says this, surely he hath borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. This is Isaiah the prophet saying, the, the Lord who smites, Jehovah Macha, is the same God that smote, smitten, if you would, his son in our place. God has not changed. He's just said, if you repent of your sins, I will become the smitten one in your place. Like this is just powerful stuff. So when I read Ezekiel, I rejoice that I'm not one of these Jews in an unrepentant mode, but I'm a, I'm a, it makes me realize, Lord, make sure if there's anything unclean in me that I've yet to repent of, Lord, I just wanna be totally clear with you. And, 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 and man, thank you for taking that bruising and that beating for me because I deserve what these guys got. But the Lord's mercy is great and it endures forever. Well, that's a great word, Jehovah Maka. And I, I actually have a warm feeling when I think of the Lord who smites because I realize he was smitten for me. Great stuff. Well, let's finish up this little chapter seven, this second sermon. Verse 10, behold the day, behold it come. The morning is gone forth. The rod hath blossomed, pride hath budded. Violence is risen up into the rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor of their multitude, nor of any of theirs. Neither shall there be wailing for them. The time has come, the day draweth near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. For the seller shall not return to that which is sold, although they were yet alive, for the vision is touching the whole multitude thereof, which shall not return, neither shall any strengthen himself in the iniquity of his life. So, you know, there's business going on in Jerusalem, buying and selling houses, but like, yeah, whatever. It's not gonna mean anything, Ezekiel says. You can buy, you can sell a house, but in a few weeks, maybe a few months, none of it's gonna matter. Um, the iniquity of their life. Verse 14, they have blown the trumpet even to make all ready, but none goeth to battle. For my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. The sword is without and pestilence and the famine within. He that is in the field shall die with the sword. He that is in the city, famine and pestilence shall devour him. But they that escape of them shall escape and shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, everyone for his iniquity. All hands shall be feeble, all knees shall be weak as water. They shall also gird themselves with sackcloth and horror and shall cover them, uh, horror shall cover them and shame shall be upon all their faces and baldness upon their heads. They shall cast their silver in the streets and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowls because it is a stumbling block of their iniquity. Verse 19 might be a verse that we as Americans should highlight. The middle of verse 19, their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. Did you see the headlines today? Um, a lot of the newspapers and you know, reports and then the headline was this, um, Bernie Madoff burns in hell. And the reason why is he died today, Bernie Madoff. Uh, who was Bernie? Bernie Madoff was a guy who made off with a lot of money. Um, back, when was that? In the, like the 90s, right? Um, um, and he ripped off 
they, they say more than 37,000 individual people, he ripped them off. Um, and you know, he was busted and, and he, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison back in, you know, 25 years ago, whenever that was. And, um, and today, you know, they're all saying he's burning in hell because he ripped off so many people. But the guy was loaded. Like he had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And, um, but you know, he's kind of the classic example was his money sure didn't save him. And he was in prison and he was very sickly in the last several years, but he's 82 and he dies in prison today. And so everybody says he's burning in hell. But guess what? I wanna remind you that we don't know that he's burning it. Well, sure, he ripped off all those people. Yeah, but did you know that's not really what gets you in hell? Um, if you told a little lie when you were four years old, that gets you in hell too. The question I would raise is not, did he rip off the 37,000 people? It's more so, did he ever repent of his sins and confess his sins to God? Because I wonder, I don't know, I have no idea. Um, he's a Jewish guy. And by the way, he ripped off a lot of Jews. Uh, you know, something like 15,000 of the people he ripped off were Jews. Uh, more than 15,000 lawsuits were filed against him when all this went down. Like, that's, that's a lot of lawsuits. But, but the question is, did Bernie Madoff ever go to his knees and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me. And I believe in Jesus that died on the cross and rose from the grave. If he ever did that, we don't know what happened to him in prison. But if he ever did, he's not burning in hell. So the papers don't know. He could be in hell, it could be heaven, but we don't know. But the one thing I wanna remind us as Americans is your money will not help you in those days. Um, I always kind of chuckle when people, you know, think that their money's gonna get them through the tribulation. Brett, I'm a post-tribber and you guys should be readying yourself to live through the tribulation. So I'm getting gold and I've got a bunker and some guns and Cheerios. And I always kind of think, man, I just don't know how the math of that works out. Because you can have all those gold bars, but if things get as bad as the Bible says it's gonna be, those gold bars aren't gonna necessarily help you. Now, now I understand that bad times can come before the tribulation period and you might need those gold bars, but it's, a, it's funny, you know, putting your trust in money uh, never really worked out for people that well. And, uh, you know, and I'm not saying to be irresponsible, to not be ready for if there's food problems or you need water or whatever. Sure, there's a level of, you know, prep, being preppers, but not crazy preppers. Um, and that's the thing. I see a lot of Christians sort of take this prepper thing and, and there's a point where we have to kind of say it's more about preparing our hearts and our minds to follow Christ in those times of trouble. Because your gold and silver, just like these people, they thought their gold and silver was good. It was just trash thrown out in the street when this all went down. That's the sad truth of it all. Well, let's finish up. Verse 20. As for the beauty of his ornament, he said, in, he said it in majesty, but they made the images of their abominations and of their detestable things therein. Therefore have I set it far from them and I will give it unto the, uh, into the hands of the strangers for, for a prey and to the wicked of the earth for a spoil and they shall pollute it. My face will I turn also from them and they shall pollute my secret place. Um, that's the Holy of Holies, by the way. For the robbers shall enter into it and defile it. Make a chain. For the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. Sounds like Portland. Um, just if you've been following the last couple of nights in Portland, another um, massively horrible, violent stuff going on in Portland, but nobody cares. Um, verse 24, wherefore I will bring the worst of the heathen and they shall possess their houses. I will also make the pomp of the strong to cease 
and their holy places shall be defiled. This um, characterizes Israel from the period um, of the glory of Solomon all the way to where now, like um, until May 14th, 1948, really this land would be cursed. And this is all kind of picturing that curse. 25, destruction cometh and they shall seek peace and there shall be none. Mischief shall come upon mischief, rumor shall be upon rumor. Then shall they seek a vision of the prophet, but the law perish from the priest and counsel from the ancients. Finally, they'll get to a point where they'll say, okay, what was that the prophets were saying? But the Lord's saying, it's too late now. Do you know that it's gonna be too late? There's a time where you can't just play games with God. You gotta realize that there's a time where judgment's coming and you need to take advantage of the days that we live in. Um, verse 25, destruction cometh and they shall seek peace they sh and there shall be none. Mischief shall come upon mischief and rumor shall be upon rumor. Oh, we already read this part. Uh, perishing from the ancients, verse 27. <laughs> the king shall mourn and the prince shall be clothed with desolation and the hands of the people of the land shall be troubled. I will do unto them after their way. Whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. That's what he's saying. I will do unto them after their way and according to their uh, deserts will I judge them and they shall know that I am the Lord. This whole thing about the Lord saying, I'm gonna wipe these people out and I'm gonna smite them, the hand that smites. I'm just so thankful that he was smitten for us. I, I finished with a little story, a little girl named Monica in Africa, Uganda. Years ago, the story is told, where she was coming home and um, she fell in a pit and broke her arm and she couldn't climb out of this pit. It was a pit, I think, uh, meant for trapping. Um, but her um, favorite little nanny who was watching her, was looking for her and found her. And she jumped down into the pit to help her. The, her name was Nadja. And, uh, and, she, and suddenly this deadly poisonous snake jumped out of the dirt and bit the nanny, Nadja. And then turned and bit the little girl. And eventually they're, they're just kind of wreathing in pain and dying from the venom, you know. They pulled out the little girl and, and, and Monica and Nadja and took, her to the, took them to the closest little medical center there in Uganda um, where there was a missionary treating. Well, the, the, the nanny died because the venom overtook her and killed her. But the nurse, uh, just feeling a missionary, by the way, she was a missionary nurse, feeling sadness for this little girl, Monica. She said, you know, this is so sad, but here's what happened. The reason why you're living is because the snake spent all of its venom in its first bite. And the second bite that hit you, the snake didn't have hardly any venom left. And that's why you're okay. And she said, did you know that someone named Jesus took the venom for you just like your nursemaid? And just had a moment of explaining the gospel to this little girl. The little girl became a Christian that day because she said, man, if somebody took my penalty, I uh, owe everything to that, that one. That's what the Lord's done with us. He took the venom for you. Um, and because of that, the bite of sin for us, we don't have to live with this kind of judgment and wrath and horror because of the, the work that Jesus did on the cross. What a glorious thing. Ezekiel makes me glad that I am not stuck and totally rebellious and saying, Lord, I don't wanna go with your way. I wanna, this Ezekiel just makes me wanna do what Jesus said, hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the way to go, amen? amen. 
Lord, we thank you so much for this scripture tonight and I pray that you'd apply it. Lord, not just in one ear and out the other, but I pray that we'd meditate on your word as we just remember what you've spoken, Lord. And now bless these, your people. Uh, as we go our way tonight, may your word just be sitting in our hearts and uh, planted like seed that might bring forth good fruit. And this we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.